of the myriad of questions we could come up with, there is one ultimate question. The question we'll focus on today here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Join us. It's the ultimate question, the one question that each and every one of us, without exception, must answer. It's a question that's found here in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. And over the course of the next couple of Sundays, we'll take our time examining this passage, this ultimate question that each and every one of us must answer. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That's a question you and I face, either now or in eternity but we will face it. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Once again, in the Gospel of Matthew, (laughs) chapter 27 this morning, I want to speak to you about the ultimate question that all must answer. The ultimate question that all must answer. I want to read our text for us before we begin with our introduction, just so it's fresh in our mind. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, he was, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The ultimate question we see is found there in verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? 
That's the ultimate question that one day all of us must answer. Either in this life or in the next. You're going to have to answer that question. What then shall I do with this Jesus whom I've heard about? And you might say, well, why is that the ultimate question? Why does everybody have to answer that question? Well, it has to do with a couple things. Basically, it has to do with who Jesus Christ is. And I just want to share with you just briefly as we begin this message a little bit about Jesus Christ. What is it about Jesus Christ that lays a claim to such a question that has to do with him directly? Why do we have to answer this question? Well, first of all, we, I want you to see the person of Christ. The person of Christ. Jesus is God. Fully. He possesses. It's all God's names. Matthew one twenty one says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. In Acts 3.14, the apostle Peter calls Jesus the Holy One, which is an Old Testament name distinctively given to God. He is one with God the Father. Jesus said this over and over again. In John 8, verse 19, it says, To know Christ is to know the Father. John 15.23 says, To hate Christ is to hate the Father. John 14.9 says, To see Him is to see the Father. And John 5.23 says, To honor Him is to honor the Father. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 37, and Matthew 10.40, it says, To receive Christ is to receive the Father. So Jesus Christ is God. He is possessor of all God's names. And He is one with the Father. He is also omnipresent. In Matthew chapter 28, we'll be getting there in a couple of weeks, verse 20, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you, what? Always. It doesn't matter the time or the season. Christ is with us. He's omnipresent. And that can only be true of the true and only God. Not only is He omnipresent, He's eternal. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. That speaks to his eternal being. He's also the creator of this world we live in. John 1.3 says all things were made by him and without him nothing has been made. So these are some of the things that we think of when we think of the name of Christ. He's also able to forgive sin which only God can do. In Mark chapter 2 verse 9 Jesus said your sins are forgiven. That's why they got so upset with him because he was claiming to be God. And he is to be worshipped as God. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says, At the t- name of Jesus every knee should bow, right? Of things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth. Every knee should bow. Clearly a sign of worship. Worshipping the Christ. So scripture clearly indicates that Jesus is fully God. And since he is God, everyone is obligated to respond to him in some form or fashion. Secondly, not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is the perfect God-man. When he came, when he was incarnate, when he came to this earth and took on a human body. Just because God, Jesus is God, it doesn't mean that he's any less of a man. How do we know that? It says that the scriptures tell us that he was born. He was circumcised. It's the Bible says that he grew Physically, he grew in stature, he grew in wisdom, he had a human name, he had flesh and blood, he was hungry, he wept, he thirsted, he slept, he was weary at times, he suffered, he was tempted, he was wounded, and he died. He was buried. 
See, all those indications are indicators of humanness. No one has ever existed like Jesus Christ. And he has the right to make tremendous demands on our lives because simply that's who he is. He is God. He is the perfect God-man. But he's also, I want you to hear this this morning, Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus came into the world not only to show us what God is like, God in a bod, but also to bring us to God. It had a purpose. The prophets outlined the details of his life, and they did so with incredible accuracy. When you talk about the birth of Christ, you look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that it would occur in Bethlehem. Daniel chapter 9 gives us the approximate time. Isaiah chapter 7 tells us that he would be born of a virgin. Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, says that he would come from a Semitic line. Genesis 22 says that he would come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 29 says that he would come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7.13 says that he would come through the seed of David. All those things were prophesied about Christ and he fulfilled every one. Not only were they prophesied about his birth, but they also were accurate about his life. Hosea 11.1 indicates that he would be taken to Egypt. Deuteronomy 18.15 says that he would be a prophet like Moses. Psalm 22, verse 10, indicates that he would trust God from his birth onward. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, says that he would begin his ministry in Galilee. Isaiah 11, 2, says that he would be anointed by God's Spirit. Isaiah 53, 4, says that he would carry our griefs and our sorrows. Zechariah 9, 9, says that he would enter Jerusalem on a colt. Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, indicates that he would perform miracles. All those things were prophesied about the life of Christ. And every one of them happened. Well, not only was details about his birth and his life prophesied in the Old Testament, but also about his death. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 3 indicates that kings would plot his death. Psalm 22 says that he would die forsaken by God. Down in verse 6 and 8 of Psalm 22, it says that he would be scorned and mocked. Zechariah eleven twelve says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's a pretty exact prophecy that exactly was fulfilled. Zechariah twelve ten says that he would be smitten and pierced by his own people. Isaiah 52, 14 says that he would be brutally treated. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10 says that he would die for the world's iniquity. Psalm 22 says that his garments would be divided. Psalm 49 verse 9 says that he would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 34 20 says that not one of his bones would be broken. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says that his beard would be plucked out and that he would be spit upon. All those prophecies came true. Not only his birth, the life, and death, but also his resurrection was prophesied. And Psalm 16.10 says that he would never see corruption. Psalm 22.22 indicates that he would conquer death. And now that he is risen and in glory, even his present work was foretold. And Psalm 110 verse 4 indicates that he would function as a priest. Amos 9.11 says that he would sit on David's throne. That is the person of Christ. That is the person we worship. That is the person we gather here every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. 
in His name because of what He's done for us and to us and in us, the person of Christ. But I also want you to see the perfection of Christ. I want you to understand that Christ, even though He was fully God and fully man, He, is, he was holy. Completely holy. Sang about that this morning. His holiness demonstrates His perfection. Do you understand? Jesus was free from any kind of defilement, any whatsoever. He loved righteousness. He hated sin. He was victorious over temptation. He rebuked sinners. And the Bible says that he will ultimately judge unbelievers. The God we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not only a person, but he's perfect in every way. And the other side of that perfection, not just his holiness, his holiness alone would be hard to deal with, but he's also loving. He's loving. I hope you appreciate that. To serve a God who's just, just holy would probably be a pretty hard thing to do. It would probably be a harsh thing to do. Because if that holy God had no love, can you imagine what that relationship would be like? See, the love that our Savior possesses, it knows no limits. In other words, He loves the Father and He loves the lost. He loves the ungodly sinners. He loves His own, the church. He loves children. It knows no boundaries. Jesus demonstrated His love by becoming, what? Poor, right? The Scripture tells us. Giving His life, forgiving sin, seeking the lost, healing the sick, supplying the needs of others in times of need, strengthening His people. He showed compassion on those who were lost. <laughs> Those who were hungry, those who were sick and blind and demonized and grieved. He even showed compassion on those who were dead. Jesus was also prayerful. He was meek. He was humble. He was righteous, good, faithful, truthful, just. He denied himself. He was the ultimate model for those who call themselves Christians. In every way... He is that spotless, perfect Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. This is the Jesus we know. It is this Jesus, the perfect person of Christ, the God-man, whom Pilate asks, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Jesus came into the world to redeem the world from sin. He came into the world... To bring salvation. He came into the world to remove transgressions. To destroy Satan. And to set up an eternal kingdom of peace. And glory for all those who would love and believe in his name. But to do that. To accomplish that incredible task. It was essential for him to come and to die. A death that he did not deserve. A death that was put upon him. And we understand the Scriptures to teach that when He died, He paid the penalty as our substitute. And when He rose victorious over sin and death, that allowed us that ability to become forgiven and to live forever as He lives forever in a place called heaven. 
See, I want you to understand this morning, the destiny of every human being in this world hinges on what they do with the person, with the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's the ultimate question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, when we look at this situation that Pilate finds himself in in our context... Pilate was put in almost an unbearable situation, a dilemma, you might say. He had to make a decision. But you know what? Pilate isn't alone in that decision-making process. Every human being is faced with the same decision Pilate was faced with. What are you going to do with Jesus, the Christ? And you know what? The answer of that question will determine your eternal destiny. Is it going to be in a place of glory, in a place of forgiveness, in a place of peace, a place called heaven? Where you share fellowship with other saints and you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? A glorified state? Or is it in a place called hell? A very real place, beloved. Scripture says a lot more about hell than it does about heaven. Hell is a very real place and it is a place, the Bible says, of torment, of gnashing of teeth. Where the worm dies not. You might think, well, if I go to hell, I'll just be there for a little while and then I'll be burned up. No. Your body's going to have some kind of a, of a uh, you have, I'd say glorified, but it's going to be some kind of a supernatural body that's not going to die off. The flames aren't going to just devour your flesh and you'll be gone. That's why it says the worm dieth not, because hell is just as eternal as heaven. Sometimes we forget that. A place called hell, the horrible place that it is, originally created for Satan and the demons, is a very real place. And it's eternal, just like heaven is eternal. And it's my prayer here this morning that you will answer that question, what do I do with Jesus the Christ? What am I to do with him? I pray that you would answer that question better than Pilate did. Because he made the wrong choice in response to that question. The question was right. He asked the right question. He just went to the wrong source for the answer. And I pray this morning that you understand that you're here under the teaching of God's word. You're in the right place. I pray that you're asking the right question. I pray that you make the right choice. Now, in order to, for us to understand what's going on here in the context, in chapter 27, we touched on this last week, there's almost kind of a parenthesis here about Judas's suicide. And so I want to go back and just reread verses 1 and 2 because 1 and 2 and, and verse 11 and onward just go right together. So it says in verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Remember, this is, this is Friday morning of Passion Week. This week started off on, on Sunday with Jesus at, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was there and, and the people came out to him and he taught them at that place outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is teeming with people because it's a Passover feast. And you remember on Monday he rode in to Jerusalem and they hailed him as Messiah. And he returned to that house that Monday night and he came back on that Tuesday and what he did was he cleansed the temple. He went in and he cleansed the temple of all the sales and the shenanigans that were going on, the money-making schemes. He threw them all out. 
And then he returned on Wednesday to teach in the temple. And then that later that, that day, they went back to the home. And on Thursday, they ended up going over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was Jesus' last time with his disciples. He'd spent much time with them, taught them much things. They had the Last Supper in that time together. And here they find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in turmoil because he knows what's coming. He tells his disciples to stay here and he takes a couple of them with him and he goes a little further to pray and every time he returns they're sleeping. Since then Jesus has been arrested. He went through the religious trial, religious segment of his trial. First before Annas, then Caiaphas, and then in the morning once again before the religious leaders, and he was abused during that time. And it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the council took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They had to figure out a way to put this man to death, a way that would seem right legitimately. All this stuff was all wrong. They shouldn't have been doing it at night. There's supposed to be a waiting period between execution time and not. None of this stuff played out in the, the trial of, of Jesus. And that was the Jewish segment of his trial, the religious section of his trial. And they couldn't just go and kill somebody because they weren't allowed to do that. They were under the, the rule of the Roman government and they held the sword. And so they had to figure out a way that Jesus would be such an affront to the secular Roman ruling authority that they would want him dead. So they started to bring up all these accusations and we've been over most of that. But they needed to get the Romans involved. Some people say, well, why couldn't they? They did that to Stephen. They took him out and they stoned him. I want you to understand, when they did that, they were acting in an illegal manner. They weren't allowed to just go kill somebody. They were under the Roman rule. And not only that, but the reason that the Romans had to get involved, once again, was because it was prophesied that the Son of God would be what? lifted up, right? To be crucified. If they would have killed him, they would have just taken him out and stoned him. And that would have violated that prophecy. So you see, the sovereign hand of God is behind all this. Don't think for a minute that Jesus is some guy that kind of lost his way and said a couple bad things to people and now he's bearing the brunt of his, his bad decisions. No. This is all predetermined by the sovereign plan of God. And so they needed to get the Romans involved to take care of this execution because they, and they alone, had the right of the sword. And the religious authorities thought, you know, if we can get them involved and they can proclaim it, then any kind of riffraff that's still following Jesus, we don't even have to deal with them. Let the Romans deal with them. So they were really taking the coward's way out, you might say. And so they bound him and led him away, delivered him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And this starts the segment of Jesus' of his secular trial before the Roman leaders. And it begins in verse 11. Kind of a little parenthetical segment there with Judas's suicide, but then we get right back into Jesus before the governor in verse 11. The Roman trial had three phases, just like the, the Jewish trial did. Christ appeared before first before Pilate, then he appeared before Herod, and then once again he came back to appear before Pilate again. 
So this is a total, you might say, of six little mini-trials that Jesus has been going through in less than 24 hours. It's a total miscarriage of justice. And what's interesting to me is that at each phase of these little mini-trials, at each phase, there was no fault found with Christ. Nobody could place anything on him because of who he was, because of him being holy because of him being perfect in every way. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.